0: Welcome to the Go Big Redcast,
1: the Husker fan sports show with Dave, Honky, Mac, and Boomer. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast. I'm your host, David Gaspers, and I'm with Honky.
2: At times like this, we're proud to be your no contact podcast of choice.
0: That's
1: right. Also with Boomer.
0: Well, it's a special uh, Go Big Redcast tonight where we can look forward to the uh, breakdown of WrestleMania 3 playing live on Fox Sports 1. And we're all looking forward to Honky's deep dive into the uh, Savage Steamboat match, which was uh, one of the uh, four or five
1: star matches of the late 80s. Absolutely. I'm also looking to forward to Honky's comments on the Bundesliga's return on Saturday. I don't know if he's taking Dortmund or Schalke, but you know we'll see. Uh, and I'm also with Redcast Rob.
3: Hey, guys. I would like to welcome Prince. A mukamara to uh, the Raiders. He is now the latest official member of the Las Vegas Raiders because that's my thing.
1: Thanks, Rob. Really appreciate that. All right. Well, uh, hopefully, the last reference to the Raiders that we can listen to on the Go Big Redcast. Uh, we have been a little sporadic on our shows. Obviously, there's a lot going on and not a lot going on, right? So, uh, we wanted to wait until we had a show. We had uh, some content that we really felt was was valuable. And hockey, there has been some you know movings and shakings going on. Again. There's roster management. There's recruiting. Um, and we have some mailbag, right? Yeah, we've had questions come in. We obviously we've had some players
2: leave. We've had some recruits come in. So there, you know, there's things to talk about and catch up from what's gone on over the last couple of weeks and. It's it's a good time to do another red
1: I just wanted to talk to you, Honky. Really, I I don't care about no. our, our listeners that much. I just missed you, man. Yeah, I know. I don't care about Boomer and Rob either. It's just it's <laughs> kind of about you and me, Dave. I miss them too. I also miss Mac, but uh, you know, Mac's <laughs> right. uh, saving lives out there. So, uh, Honky, let's let's start with roster management a little bit. Uh, you know, like I said, it's been a few weeks since our last show. Uh, since that time, uh, Noah Vedral. Entered the transfer portal. Uh, we also got some recruits. We lost some recruits. Uh, give us a rundown.
2: Yeah, we lose the Nebraska quarterback. We gain a Nebraska quarterback. Vedrill transferred out. Uh, we don't know exactly where he's going yet. I think some of the names I've seen have been like Northern Illinois, and I even heard something about Rutgers. But, uh, you know, he hasn't made it official where he's going yet. But uh, we lose a kid from Wahoo at that position, and we gain a kid from Kearney Catholic, uh, Heinrich Harburg, five, uh, you know, big tall kid. He was starting to get some offers nationally. He was getting Boston College, uh, NC State, which is where Tim Beck is at right now. They were going after him. Auburn, even Clemson was starting to kind of sniff at the guy. So it was an important get for a lot of reasons. We needed a QB, obviously. Uh, He is a legacy, and we don't get every legacy right now, as we might talk about a little later. So I think it's important that we got this kid, and I think he's a good kid for us to get. Um, we've lost a few walk-on offensive linemen. They've gone into the transfer portal. I mean, not every kid that's coming here as a walk-on is gonna end up staying here for four or five years, just like the scholarship kids. So nothing to get too panicked about there. And then we also, from a recruiting standpoint, we got Patrick Payton, a 205 hundred five-pound outside linebacker from Miami. So uh, it's funny. I mean, people get all worked up. Oh my gosh, we all, we're not at ten or fifteen like some other schools. Whatever. This is what Nebraska does. We're fine. We're making the connections that we need to make, and we'll be in good shape when it comes to signing day.
1: Yeah, I I would say that some of those schools that have a really large class already, uh, I'm looking at you, Minnesota, and Tennessee, kudos to you, but this is a very odd recruiting cycle. Unprecedented, right, in the sense that they can't take on-campus visits right now. Uh, More kids are are committing earlier um, without those visits because- Rosters are filling up and they don't know when they're gonna have an on-campus visit. Uh so there's a lot to be determined out there. Um National Signing Day in December may get pushed back. I have no idea. And everybody has doesn't have an idea right now. So there could be a, a lot of movement decommits, if you will, at some point. So I, I wouldn't get too worried about that. I, I think the the approach that Frost and Company takes is they want to make sure they get the right guys and uh i think heinrich harberg kind of fits that mold you know they did want to see him throw in person that's what they were hoping and they were kind of holding out on that mm-hmm. uh, all of his measurables sound great right he's six five probably under 200 right now but he's got a big frame you could add a lot of good weight to that he's got a cannon for an arm he's actually fast as well apparently runs in the you know four five four six type range you know, he, he's not Adrian Martinez, but he's a, a different type of athletic quarterback and uh, one that uh, Verduzco feels could fit well in the system. So uh, it's exciting. I think this is the perfect quarterback this cycle, in my opinion, just in the sense of I, – I, we might even mention this in a different podcast. Is like considering you have years where you have Adrian Martinez and then you have Luke McCaffrey, then you have Logan Smothers, um, it was nice – to get a kid here that's in state who probably would admit himself that he's a developmental prospect. He needs a little bit more time and he's not in a hurry to uh, start right away. And uh, hopefully he'll be there for several years. And that, that a lot of things can change in that QB room before Heinrich Harburg may be ready to start. And he's going to be there. And that's a, that's a great fit for, I think this class with a lot of potential.
2: Yeah, well, if you get four-star after four-star after four-star quarterbacks, then you're pretty much just going to have transfer after transfer, too. I mean, there's no right or wrong way necessarily to do it, but I think that Frost is trying to space out players, get developmental guys, get your guys like Smothers. I think we look at him as kind of being the next Adrian, a guy that could be a multi-year starter. But then sprinkled in between them are guys like McCaffrey and – Harburg that could be those developmental guys. And and let's see what they do. If they develop quick, maybe they become multi-year starters too. I mean, we are all about competition. Nobody's guaranteed anything here. Two of the other players that I want to talk about that have been brought on since we've last talked, one of them is a former 2019 running back, uh, John Bivens. He's expected to walk on at Nebraska. And before he was injured, he was regarded as one of the top running backs in Ohio. He had Power 5 offers from USC, West Virginia, Louisville, Kentucky, iowa state etc so i mean it's very good to to see that you know we're able to get a guy like that to come in here as a walk-on the other guy that we've added now and it's just came the other day and it's someone that's going to be able to contribute ideally fairly soon like as in 2020 is a new punter that we brought in from australia daniel cerny boomer as you know is our special teams coordinator uh what can you tell us about his, you know, his catch and release and hang time and all those good things? I mean, the things you, I know you've been charting on a on a daily basis.
0: Well, I don't want to step on Sean Callahan's deep dives into his YouTubes. If you're listening, Sean, I'm glad you did. It's just somebody looked into it, and that's fine. He's from the Pro Kick Australia, which has actually turned a lot of uh, Australian athletes and gotten them ready for careers in NCAA at the college level and the pro level, and you know, we've talked about it for years how important it is to have a good special teams and how important a punter is to flip the field. And if he's the player we need to do that, then great. I do like the idea that this maybe shows the importance of special teams to Frost now that they are taking it seriously. We've talked about it many, many times, and it's it's a running gag with the, the red cast, but it's a gag for a reason. I mean, you've gotta be able to flip that field when you need to and, and cover it well. And if you can't do that, you're just giving
1: games away yeah boomer it's a it's a good point first off uh coverage you just said that i think uh nate klaus uh was on one of the shows today and said that uh cerny's hang time was something like i remember 4.5 seconds or something which is a full second longer than what we averaged last year and so if he can del you know deliver that type of hang time that changes punt coverage and and all those type of things and At length on this show, we have talked about how we don't necessarily believe in scholarship punters or kickers when you can find them uh, quality walk-ons from in-state, and we've done that for decades, Um, but if if you are going to offer a a scholarship punter, you better be a a four-year starter type guy, and I'll, I'll be honest with you guys, I mean, punting is different than it was even a decade ago, and part of that, a big part of it is actually a Nebraska alumni punter, Sam Cook right, who's with the Baltimore Ravens, he has kind of pioneered how punting has changed in the NFL, where he has all these different types of kick styles, right, where he can turn the ball over and cough and kick it at at whatever angle he wants, etc. And Australian rules football guys come natural that, that type of punting style, because they've been doing that for years. And so if Cerny is that type of punter, not only does he have a hang time and distance, but can really control the direction of the ball um, and do multiple different styles of kicks so the returner can't know what's coming, that's a game changer.
2: The other thing I think is just catching the damn punts and (laughs) if having a guy like this on the team in practice, if you can actually practice some scenarios where he's kicking the way that other teams have been kicking against us and we have to catch it, we have to stop the ball and not let it roll an extra 20 yards, I mean, that can benefit us in multiple ways, too. Absolutely. I typically tend to be a guy that says, hey, you know, get your punters through the walk-on ranks and, you know, bring five, six guys in, let them compete, and the the winner eventually give them a scholarship. I'm all about giving scholarships to punters, but typically not right out of high school. But, you know, we'll see the success or not of this, you know, in a couple of years, just like with any recruit, I guess, that we bring in.
0: Yeah, the, I mean, the Pro Kick Australia, they've turned out a lot of, lot of uh, good punters, for the college ranks I think it's something like 70 or 75 punters have been on scholarship since this pro kick Australia started and uh, five Ray guy award winners have actually you know come from this pro kick Australia so there is something to be said for the Australian athlete being a good good kicker and you know we're we're big fans of uh, Australian rules football here at the red cast we wish they'd go back to the old uniforms for the referees with the agreed overcoats and hats I mean that's something they've just lost and uh, big Saint Kilda fans here so go Saints <laughs>
1: Redcast, Rob, you got to be quick, man. Uh, jump in.
3: No, no, it's fine. I, but punting is always one of those important positions that you know it, it's all about field position. And if you can get a punter that can place the ball in in the so-called coffin corner, or if you can get a guy that can always put the ball deep in the enemy territory, and I'm putting up my air courts right now, then that's what you need and if you're going to give a scholarship to a guy and you really feel like right up front that that's going to be the guy that is going to be able to do that then you know i'm all for it now let's let's be honest let's be honest if if really the ideal situation would be that like we only see that guy once a game that's
1: a jesse kush type scenario where where jesse would only punt once a game
3: yes yeah i mean you only want your punter out there once a game. sure sure but But the fact is, is that if you need a guy to do his job and do it well, that's one of them, him and the kicker.
1: Yeah, I guess that's where our always our rub is with scholarship kickers is, I mean, we gave Caleb Lightborn a a scholarship. Mike Riley felt that was justified or Bruce Reed, I don't know. Um, And when you give someone a scholarship to do that, you expect them to come on campus and kick for four years. And uh, it didn't work out. Right. And. We've had some issues with other scholarship kickers, and so we've been snakebitten on that a little bit. Mm. I hope this is different this time around. Anyway, so Honky, uh, other scholarship changes or recruiting hits or misses. Let's talk about that.
2: Yeah, so really, I mean, I think we kind of hit on the whole roster management piece of it right now, who's come and who's gone. You know, one of the guys that didn't come here in the last two weeks was an in-state player, a, a legacy, Keegan Johnson. So I've kind of taken a, you know, a personal hiatus from Twitter for the last few weeks. I've gone on every once in a while, but not nearly what I have in the past. And uh but the little that I have seen, uh, apparently, uh, some people have not treated or have not reacted very well to uh Keegan Johnson going to Iowa. And I guess I think it's an interesting conversation at the very least. I know we're not the first show to have it. That's fine, but you know, I, what, what's your take on it? Is, you know, is it a big deal? Is it not a big deal? Are the fans overreacting? To
1: did the fans overreact? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an easy one there. The answer is yes. Um, certain fans, right? Not the whole fan base, but certain right, fans. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, I, uh, obviously, there's a couple of uh, touch points here. One of the fact that he he chose Iowa over Nebraska uh, does seem to rub some people wrong, especially in the Omaha Metro. Um, And then there's also, you know, his father Cluster uh, has two other sons, one that went to Wyoming and one went to South Dakota State. Neither got an offer from Nebraska from previous coaching staffs. And uh, so there's a lot of... um, you know, connect the dots going on there on, on was, uh, Keegan influenced by Cluster or her, his brothers and their, you know, perception of Nebraska. I, I have no idea on any of that. And I don't think it's really that important. I think, you know, Keegan Johnson made a decision to go to Iowa. He felt it was the right fit. And that's, that's great. I think it's fine that Cluster Johnson supports that as a father. Um, you know, your, your son's going to make his own decisions and you think it's the right decision. That's, Fine. I I think what the second thing that rubbed Nebraska fans wrong is is Keegan, and then Cluster also kind of supporting this is the statement of saying, "Well, Nebraska is the same program it was when my dad was there," and if that by itself, I heard I've heard a lot from Michael Severe and others saying, "Well, that's true, right? We're not mid nineties Nebraska. I don't think any Nebraska fan." would be like, well, wow, Keegan, that's totally wrong. We're the exact same program. Obviously, things have changed. Um, but when you pair that comment with the fact that you chose Iowa over Nebraska indicates that Iowa is somehow far more relevant than Nebraska. And mm-hmm. I guess if you look at it in the last four years and say, well, Nebraska hasn't had any winning seasons and all those type of things, sure. But in the last decade or so, Iowa also has had losing seasons. And Iowa sends players to the NFL. I don't know how many wide receivers go to the NFL from Iowa, but uh, it, I think that probably was the the a bigger sticking point for Nebraska fans is that comment paired with the fact that he committed to Iowa, uh, not a Clemson or Ohio State or something that's clearly yeah. better than Nebraska, um, probably bothers uh, some Nebraska fans. And uh, that this will all fade away, and I don't think it's that big of a deal.
2: Yeah, generally speaking, I mean, this is just my advice to anybody getting recruited. When you accept an offer someplace, you simply say, hey, I think it's the best fit. You know, Please respect my decision, and you move on, right? And anytime you make a comparison to another program in any way, you may get some feedback from those fans. I will say that. Having said that, there's no obligation for a kid to go to the school that his dad went to. I think Klesser retweeted... Emmett Smith talked a lot about uh, when his son went to Stanford and talked about how, you know, it's his decision. He's paving the way for his own career, and that's awesome. We have a head coach right now, Scott Frost, who did not go to the alma mater of his dad, Larry Frost, right out of high school. He chose to also go to Stanford. A couple years later, you know, he made the right choice and came back, but that's not the point. One of the last shows we did, I talked with Jeffrey the Greek, a former player at Iowa, And Jeffrey the Greek said he thinks that Frost is going to go out there and, for the most part, shut down the borders of Nebraska. He said, for the most part. And since that show went live, uh, we've lost Avante Dickerson to Minnesota. We've lost Keegan Johnson, obviously, to Iowa. And I think, you know, some of this can come back to me and say, well, am I disappointed in all that? No, I'm not disappointed. The thing I would be disappointed is if our head coach and our staff were slow playing and not offering our in-state guys. That's not what's happening. You can go back to literally our first episode, Redcasters. Go all the way back three that's years true. Ago, Listen to our first one. And my issue was about slow playing and not offering in-state guys and not respecting in-state talent. That's not happening right now. Our coaches are offering kids. And if those kids choose to not come here, that's okay. They're not the first ones. I mean, my got Ty Good and Tim Ritter and Larry Station, and I can keep going on. If we offer the kids and they don't come here, then they don't come here. Gail Sayers didn't come here. He decommitted from here. OK, I mean, this is nothing new. So here's the other thing that I will say about the Redcast. We went out of our way to create a PSA that said stay off of Twitter. If you feel like you need to tweet at players or tweet at recruits and tell them, you know, what you think when, when you're really upset. S-O-O-T, stay off of Twitter. Don't tweet at 18 year old kids making the, what they feel is the best decision for their lives. Stop it. It's stupid. You look dumb. The fan base doesn't look dumb. You look dumb. Stop it.
3: Hey, I would just like to say, too, that the last wide receiver to get drafted out of Iowa was Marvin McNutt, and he went to the Philadelphia Eagles in the sixth round in 2012. So, there was other reasons going on there when it came to uh, why he chose Iowa, but... 2012 in the sixth round. So, yeah, I mean,
2: look, Nebraska, there's other things too. I mean, there's a lot of things that play in this, right? I mean, Nebraska had the second best wide receiver class in the Big Ten last year behind only Ohio State. That's right. Maybe that played into it. And before we think that there's this impending doom that anytime you lose a couple of your in state guys, Iowa, their top two in state players right now look to be potentially headed elsewhere. And they've lost three of their top five the last two years. So if you just look solely at that, you know, if that's an indication of you're, you're doomed, then Iowa should be, right?
1: Yeah, hockey. I mean, let's talk about that a little bit, right? I mean, I think, you know, Nebraska feels like they're still in a pretty good spot with Thomas Fedoni. That still has a long way to play out, or, or maybe not, but I think we're in a good spot there, very competitive. And then there's other Iowa guys like TJ Bowlers, who would be a legacy guy for Iowa, that Nebraska's, uh, deep into that re- uh, recruiting aspect yep. so there's definitely some you know back and forth there and I guess that's making it more and more of a rivalry right I mean uh it feels like one when it, it, it comes down to this type of recruiting things there's other in-state guys like AJ Rollins that hopefully we land so there's still in-state guys that we want to want to get so there's a long way to go here and uh we definitely grabbed some Iowa guys in the last couple of years and as we mentioned earlier in the show, this is a weird recruiting cycle and there could be a lot of, of fluctuation here. I, I I kind of feel like Keegan Johnson is probably an Iowa guy, but I think we might still have a shot with Avante Dickerson at some point. So uh, I'm sure Scott Frost and company aren't going to give up on, on anyone. Hey boomer, uh, Scott Frost was on uh, sports nightly tonight, uh, which is always a nice thing to actually hear from the head coach. And uh, he went into some, some detail on, you know, what Nebraska is thinking about, if uh, we can potentially get back to Nebraska football here this summer. Did you listen to that? Yeah, I did.
0: And it was, it, it was a good listen and it brought up a lot of uh, issues and concerns and things that are going to have to get put into place if we're going to get this whole football thing to work in the fall. You know, part of it is that, you know, the Big Ten suspended any actual team sports through June 1st currently, and who knows, they could choose to extend that further, you know, once we get closer to June 1st, so who knows what's going to happen there. And then you have to have all these conversations about what kind of preparation time are we going to have for an actual football season? Are you going to get six weeks to prepare for it? You know, five weeks, four weeks, how much time are you going to give players? I mean, you don't want to just you know, give everybody a couple of weeks to get ready and know you're playing football in three weeks. You know, you're concerned about injuries and safety and just being in shape at that point. You know, all those things have to be put into it. And he mentioned about how, yeah, ma- there's- yeah, and how many people have their hands in this cookie jar as far as, as football goes. I think it was the actual term he used was the, you know, hands in the cookie jar. I mean, there's lots of money involved in this. He brought up a lot of great points and a lot of good questions. And it's stuff that people that are paid a lot of money you know, as part of this whole process need to figure out. They're going to figure out Fairly quickly if they want to make all this work. So it, it was a good conversation to to listen to for sure.
1: Hockey, uh, I know you probably have some thoughts on here, and I think there's a an issue of you know fairness a little bit as well on you know the fact that we only had a couple spring game uh, spring practices and other programs had more, and there's uh, challenges with you know how's how's the roster actually fit in considering there's kids coming on campus uh, potentially, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I mean there's a lot of questions with with fairness pieces. You know, not just from spring practices. Some schools had seven, eight, nine practices. Nebraska had two. But you also have, you know, the recruits that are trying to come in. And there are some recruits that needed to get their testing up or needed to get their GPA up. And all of a sudden, their last semester that they really counted on was impacted greatly by this. And so how does the NCA respond to that? Do they give extra waivers? I don't know the answers to those things, but those are things that more schools than just Nebraska are dealing with. But on top of that, from the economic impact of this, I mean, I'm going to quote Frost here tonight on Sports Nightly. He goes, I'm also a little concerned about the other sports at the university and their ability to continue if we take a major budget hit and don't have home football games. There's a lot at stake in writing on this besides people wanting to play football. And I think it's important that we find a way to get it up and running so that we have a way to support all those things. And that's the truth. We've seen all the economics of college athletics. We know how it works. There are only one or two or three sports at any university that make money, and football is number one. By far. By far. And there's a whole lot of programs that don't. And so let's just live in the world for a second. I hate this world, but we're going to live in the world where football doesn't exist. College football doesn't happen this year. And then we get done with it, but the coronavirus is gone after football season would normally be done. So now it's time to play the other sports. Well, football is is what has traditionally provided the finances to keep those sports alive. How do you have those sports if you don't have football in the first place? I mean, it's kind of the the chicken and the egg kind of deal, right? And so I think that's what Frost is hitting on there. We need to have football be able to provide for the the athletic department the way that it traditionally has. And again, Nebraska is not unique in that, but Nebraska certainly is as affected as any school in the in the country by that because our football program is as successful financially as it is.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there is typically two or three revenue-generating programs per athletic department at, at best, I'll say, mm-hmm. and those can vary. Sometimes it's college baseball like in LSU. Sometimes it's going to be college volleyball like Nebraska. Um, yep. Most men's basketball programs at least break even or make a little bit of money. There's, I believe, only three or four of the power five conference schools that make more money on basketball than they do on football like duke for example and there's many of these college athletic departments that are practically solely funded by their football programs and then other supplemental income from from the actual university and in nebraska's case we give back 10 million a year i think typically right to the university after covering all the expenses for the other programs. And some people find this very uncomfortable. I think Purdue Skip uh, might be one of those, right? Where, I mean, it's a, a disappointing financial system, right? That football has to drive that. Um, but others, I, I think it's just a reality that's been been my reality. I've always known that Nebraska football paid for everything for, for decades. So I'm not surprised about this. And I'm not surprised that... Um, athletic departments want to see the, see football played. And I think it ends up being a question of, you know, is your university going to be typically risk adverse in, in trying to, um, you know, get kids back on campus and, and are they doing online classes opposed to on campus and, and all those type of things. And I think there's just too early to, to make those type of decisions. Anybody who thinks they already know that. Um is crazy, and I think that college football, uh, the the value of it is going to be more clear to more people after all this is over with.
0: You know, we've kind of talked about this in our text chains, and it it might be a fun uh, go big redcast like weekend special when everybody's on here <laughs> and really liquored up just to kind of get everyone's juices flowing. You know, it 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 raises a lot of questions about how you know college sports is currently situated and funded and. You know, is it does it make sense the way we we have college sports organized and the amount of money we've put into certain things? You know, whether it's college football or you know the the, the non revenue generating right. sports. I mean, they still command high salaries for coaches and things like that when they don't quote unquote make any money for the universities or or for the. I mean, I I'd, I'd be willing to bet there's a lot of power five football programs that don't actually. Make a profit just because, you know, they have to get a lot of fees from students and things like that. There's a lot of questions that come into this and it's, it's not an easy thing to figure out. And it's,
1: it's, and it's tough. It, yeah. It, it's not always e- even as simple as a ledger sheet and saying, Oh, this was profit or, or a loss. Because, you know, look at how many programs have made the transition from FCS to FBS, Appalachian State, for example. Georgia Southern, et cetera, over the last decade, and you scratch your head and say, "Why?" Uh, just to make a the Camellia Bowl and go six and six in the Sun Belt, but you know many of these institutions see college football as the the front porch to their entire university, and their name recognition and advertising that's gained through football is hard to put a, a, a dollar amount on. And that's apparent because I don't know why you'd be doing that if you aren't going to be competitive. You're literally going from a division that you can compete for a national title in to one that you can't, and they willingly make that decision over and over again.
0: It is interesting you know how this is going to play out and what sort of impacts this could have on on college sports. you know is it going to encourage like an expansion of uh, the playoffs system that we have? I mean, it's an opportunity for college sports, as we know it, to generate more money. If you can expand the playoff, there's no question an expanded playoff would generate more money for the teams involved. So, are we more likely to see that? And I think it's certainly possible. So, it's it kind of opens up a whole whole avenue of changes. It could, it could, it'll probably accelerate a lot of things that we probably would have seen, but I think we'll see it a little sooner because of this. That's just that's just my impression.
2: But if the issue is that college athletics are too dependent on college football money. And so the only answer is to go and have a bigger playoff or whatever it is to bring more money into football so they can support more sports. If that's the only answer, then you're only furthering the issue, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we have to be okay with the economic setup of college athletics that certain sports, football being a primary one, but men's basketball. And as you mentioned, Dave, at Nebraska, what women's volleyball has done has been amazing amazing baseball, women's basketball, there are going to be certain sports at certain schools that are going to be difference makers and provide for the other sports that just simply aren't going to be providing for themselves. And it doesn't mean that those sports shouldn't be there. It's the reality that college athletics, certain sports pay for other ones. And and that's that's what it's all about. It actually leads a little bit to a mailbag question that we had, Dave. Mailbag! Coworker Eric asked, Does the recent news about the athlete name and image and likeness, is it good for the overall competitiveness in college football? So his example was like Will schools like Bowling Green and Colorado State. Well, they have an even more of a disadvantage in recruiting than the likes of the Alabama, Clemson, or even Nebraska. So, you know, he's basically saying, you know, there are the haves and the have-nots. And does this name, image, and likeness make the have-nots even have-nottier? (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's an interesting way to say it. I hadn't really ever thought about the Bowling Greens of the world in, in this, but uh, let's run with that. Right, Boomer? I, you could, I could see a scenario where you've got a, a, a well-known Ohio high school player, uh, but because of, you know, height, weight, speed, whatever, he's not getting recruited by Ohio state, etc., cetera. And maybe he could go somewhere else, but, uh he already has some name recognition and going to a Mac school in state like Ohio or Toledo or something, um he could build upon that. And name image and likeness is the reality is like you know, you can essentially get paid for tweets, um Instagram posts, all that type of stuff, uh besides you know more traditional media, right, advertising, etc. Um a player who is a, a borderline power 5 guy might actually see an advantage of, uh, from a financial standpoint to stay home um, in a small market because um, you know someone in Toledo might actually you know care I don't I don't know I'm not, I I think Nebraska also fits into that in the sense of like you know there is no pro team here et cetera. so your exposure if you're the starting quarterback or a running back in Nebraska is extremely high and, um, you know, your value to local advertisers could be greater than in a larger market where yours is a a small fish in a a big, big pond.
0: I think there's some truth to that. When I look at a school like Nebraska, I think what we're going to be able to offer versus a, you know, school like a Bowling Green or a Kent State or Akron or whatever it is, you know, yeah, sure, you're in Ohio, but Nebraska has better resources just to start with our athletic department. We're already kind of ahead of that curve. I think we're going to be able to better steer athletes taking advantage of that name, image, and likeness aspect of it. It's going to be difficult to say how, you know, you couldn't be better advantaged being being a player at a Nebraska, at an Alabama, at an Auburn, or any of those other programs where there isn't a nearby pro school that would suck all the oxygen out of the room. If you're a big star... Right. Well, any star, really. I mean, just I mean, think about it. it. Even if you look at it like from a volleyball perspective, I mean, we we mentioned that as far as you know, Nebraska versus other programs. I mean, a volleyball player at Nebraska is going to be better known or better a chance to take an advantage of your name and likeness than you are at a volleyball player at you
1: know Akron or Bowling Green or whatever it is. I mean, it it just is. Uh, let me ask Redcast Rob here because he's the one of us that actually went to a small-state uh, college, right, Rob? Um, opposed to a big-state university like Nebraska. Um, how how would you feel like, you know, the, I guess the marketing potential of a star at Sonoma State would, would play out? Is there any value in that?
3: With guys like Larry Allen, and uh, when you're talking about, like, Vincent Jackson, and you, you get into those type of players. You, Vincent Jackson obviously played for... Uh, University of Northern Colorado, when they won a D2 national championship, and then Larry Allen, they never won a championship, but he was drafted out of Sonoma State. It's hard to tell with players like that because as much as I want to be a proponent for players when it comes to them being able to market their small schools, most of those guys, I mean, let's be honest, nobody's ever heard of them until they actually get drafted. And once once they get drafted, that's a whole different story. So
2: So it's probably not a positive for these smaller schools.
3: No, and nobody knew who Larry Allen was. I mean, dude was popular on campus when I was in school there because he drove a red Mustang 5.0 around campus. (laughs) But, I mean, other than that.
2: But this is a clear example of Sonoma State boosters coming in, as they always do, and put big money down <laughs> to get the players there.
3: That's right. That's right. Well, first of all, Sonoma State doesn't have any big boosters <laughs> because we're a liberal arts school. I
1: I would guess I would argue in other instances. Let's take Danny Woodhead at a shattered state. Great
2: example, Dave.
1: You know, so so Danny Woodhead might have had a successful career at Nebraska, but he might not have been a starting running back there. He he might have been a great. You know, uh, even though he still would have potentially got drafted and ended up doing great things in the NFL, he might have still had a a niche role in Nebraska in some way. I don't know. Maybe he was a starting running back in Nebraska. But we know at Shadron State that he was essentially the Heisman Award winner and set records there. And all of Western Nebraska paid attention to Shadron State football while he was there because they were on the national scene at that level, essentially. Was Danny Woodhead's value from an NIL perspective, you know, completely gone because he went to Shadron State? I don't, I don't know because you know, it's just hard for me to say that 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 his NIL yeah. value is nil just because he went to a small school. I mean, everybody there knew Danny Woodhead. I mean, literally everybody in Western Nebraska knows Danny Woodhead. Any car dealership in Alliance or whatever would have been happy to have Danny Woodhead speaking for them. that was a very good discussion. Now, we have another mailbag
2: question that came in. This is from Devin on Twitter. And he said, have y'all ever discussed the other years that Nebraska should have, could have been national champs? And I know, Dave, you've got 15 years in your memory bank that you've got, and I'm the same way. But we can't start with anyone earlier than Boomer. I mean, he's going to come up with years back in the 1800s. So Boomer... To start with you, <laughs> but are there other teams that should have been national champs that weren't?
0: Oh, absolutely. I I, I love Devin's juicy Y'all. I mean, being from West Texas, I'm more than willing to...
1: Is Devin from Texas? It so- sure sounds like Y'all. Eh, it did not matter, but we're, we're running
0: with it, Dave. So let's go with that. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, absolutely. There are some old school teams that we really need to claim national titles for. If other schools are going to do it, why the hell don't we... Uh, You know, the first one that comes to mind is the 1902 Nebraska team uh, under Walter C. Bummy Booth. I mean, that's a team we've referenced a time or two on the Redcast. Um, Bummy had uh, several great years here in Nebraska. Uh, I, I don't think anything was better than the 1902 team. That team went uh, unbeaten, they were untied, and nobody scored on them. There were a lot of good teams in 1902. I mean, there's no question that was a tough year for college football. and There were other teams that are... You know, granted the national title, uh, you know, feeling Yost was at Michigan at that point. So it would have been interesting if we had played Michigan that year. We didn't, but. It was a team that beat teams like Colorado. They beat Minnesota. They beat Missouri. They beat Kansas, Northwestern. So they did play legit teams.
2: If we would have played Machine, let's say that hypothetically would have happened. Fielding Yost was at Nebraska prior to that, right? Yes,
0: he was at Nebraska prior to the Bummy Booth team. I mean, that would have been a hell of a game. I mean, we were, they were an offensive juggernaut. We were the defensive team. I mean, nobody could score. I mean, nobody did score against that Nebraska team that year. I'm granted the forward pass wasn't legal, but it was, you know, everybody played on the same rules and it was a different era. It would have been fun to see if a playoff had existed then, you know, what would have happened and, and, we're a legit national title contender in 1902. Uh, 1915 is another year we are a legit national title team. Uh, that was Jumbo's team, another one of our favorite coaches here in the Redcast for all of our loyal listeners. We were 8-0 and undefeated. We defeated teams like K-State, Notre Dame, Iowa State, Kansas, Iowa. So it wasn't another one of those years where it's just you're playing, you know, your crap local teams. We beat good teams that year and legitimate teams, and, you know, there's been a lot of schools that have claimed national titles for a lot less than than we had back then, so there, there's two right off the bat. Gosh, I think only three teams scored on us. I think Drake scored on us, Notre Dame was a really close game, and Iowa scored like seven points, and we scored 50-something thereabouts. So Everybody else got shut out in 1915. The forward pass was legal then, so it was a little different era than even we saw in the Bumby Booth era, so... That that team was a legitimate, unstoppable one. You know, you had Guy Chamberlain playing on that team. That was a great team with good players on it and could legit be a national title contender. And, you know, another just team that I think we forget about that could have, should have been a national title contender with one thing or another going the other way was 1982. If you don't have a horrible refereeing call against Penn State, that team's undefeated. That team probably should have been on a national title team.
2: Yep, I agree. Those are those are my 3 right off the top of my head. That's good, Boomer. Yeah, you know, I think Boomer, you know, going all the way from 1902 to 1982, the perfect transition. <laughs> that gets right to you, Dave, and and the years I think that that you are very familiar with. I mean, what are some of the years that you would think of? I'll take the question
1: literally. He said what over should have, right? And so you know, there's a little bit of a difference there, but that's pretty broad because, or would have, should have, could have, right? I mean, and so I, I would say that in the could have category, the sixty—I want to say sixty-five—team that lost to Alabama in the Orange Bowl was an undefeated team, right, Honky? That they got they got spanked by Alabama in the the Orange Bowl, but that was a national title game. Essentially, they would have won that game. That would have been a title for Devaney. So that that's a could have, right? That was a very good Nebraska team.
2: They were ten zero going into that game. Lost thirty nine to twenty eight to Alabama. So they
1: lost by eleven points. But that they win that game, they win win the national championship that year. Um yep. So that's a could have. It was there. And I'll keep this try try to keep this chronological. I'll, I'll do a question one actually. The seventy. 70- Eight team, I want to say, that finally beat Oklahoma for, for Osborne. The week after they beat Oklahoma, they lose to Missouri. If they would have beaten Missouri, which they would have been favored to do so, uh, they would have been undefeated. Is that right, Honk? No, they would have had one loss. They started the season with a loss to Alabama. Ah. And that's
2: the one that uh, Mike Babcock mentioned was the his fault. He, yeah, when right. he was on our Husker History 101, he, he claimed fault for that, but they lost twenty to three in Birmingham, but besides that, they were ranked fourth in the country and played number one Oklahoma and beat right. number one Oklahoma. They became number two in the country. Then next week right. they lost to Missouri. If they would have beaten Missouri, they would be playing for the national
1: title. Yeah, in so there you go. And then I then I do throw in eighty one. Boomers already mentioned eighty two, but eighty one, we do in fact play for the national title versus Clemson. Danny Ford's Clemson team and lose 22 to 15, I believe. And so even though we had a more than a loss on that, that schedule, I believe we are still playing in a, a bowl game that if we would have won and because the other teams that were ahead of us in the polls had already lost, that was a chance for a national title. Um, so there's, there's three right off of the top of my head and I could go to more, but I'll, I'll let honky jump in here.
2: All right. Well here, you know, using kind of the, The series of threes here. I think there are three years I want to go with, and they all have a three in them. And let's start with 1963. And we're talking about a team that went 10 and 1. Their only loss was a four-point loss, 17 to 13 to Air Force in Lincoln. But it's the first team to beat Oklahoma under Devaney. So it got that monkey off of the back. It won our first big eight title for Devaney and it beat Bud Wilkinson's Oklahoma team 29-20. to And Dave, they they won it on November 23rd, 1963. Is there any significance at all to that date to you?
1: That is right after JFK's assassination. That's correct. That is the day afterwards.
2: And the significance of that was that Bud Wilkinson was on a physical fitness committee, something that uh, uh, JFK had put together that Wilkinson was a part of. And Wilkinson basically said that, JFK would want the game to be played. That was why it was played. Because a lot of other games that next day were canceled. And Nebraska won it twenty-nine to twenty, and went on to play in the Orange Bowl, beat Auburn thirteen to seven, and and went ten and one. So I mean, that's a team, you know, that I think, you know, in the should have, could have, could have been a national title. Now, Boomer, you are there? Were there anyone else that would have been in contention?
0: Yeah, that was a tough year for the Huskers. I mean. Texas, I know nobody else to hear that in the state, but that was a national title team for Texas. They went 11-0. and They started the season number five. They beat number one Oklahoma, and they ended up beating number two uh, Navy in the Cotton Bowl that
1: year. Roger Staubach led Navy, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, that was that was going to be a tough one for Nebraska to pull off a national title with either way. Maybe, maybe it would have been a shared one. Who knows?
1: But. I think to Honky's point, though, there was possibility there. Yeah the, yeah, the quality of the team uh probably would have been worthy of consideration even though maybe there were yeah. uh, other teams that yeah, yeah, that would have been a good year, yeah.
0: yeah. just that that one loss threw us off, but it would it would've been a possibility for sure. My team, other no
2: teams thing. that had the 3 in them were obviously 83. We went for 2, we didn't get it and it is what it is. And the other one's 93. I mean, that team, you know, goes undefeated during the regular season plays Florida State. They're a 17 and a half point underdog. They play the Florida State team. Byron Bennett misses the last second field goal, but uh, you know, we lose 18 to 16. We are every bit the national title as any, any team that year, Notre Dame, Florida State, whoever. Uh, we were as good as anybody and just didn't come away really with the championship. I mean and there were <laughs> there was William Floyd's potential fumble and Corey Dixon's potential punt return that was called back by a phantom clip, but that's not the point. The point is that you know, when we're talking about teams and back to Devin's question, the teams that had chances to win titles, those were the ones that came to my mind.
1: You know, I think it's a it's a great question that Devin gave us because there's other examples from our childhood, say the late 80s teams. You know, the 87, for example, went into the Oklahoma game 1 versus 2. And so you could have that's a woulda shoulda coulda there's a a chance there you win that game and you go on and and play a bowl game for a national title i just don't know how good the 87 team actually was in hindsight right um and so there's several of those teams in the late 80s that were awfully close with one more victory namely versus oklahoma or colorado um that could have at least played for a title and now the basketball all right uh some good football talk there honk I missed that I want to keep on talking football and hopefully we have uh, a, a season to look forward to here in the near future also some basketball talk right uh a lot of stuff going on there you know um I don't know when the last time we had one of these shows it we had a, a large signing class with uh, Fred Hoiberg. And we've also added an additional uh, signee uh, since that time, right?
2: Yeah, we've added a, a few people. Uh, you know, Eduardo Andre just signed uh, this week. He's a 6'9", 220-pound center uh, from Chandler, Arizona. He had offers from Auburn, Boston College, Illinois, and a and And in addition to him, you know, we've also received transfer from Trey McGowans. He came from Pitt. I know Kobe Webster, we've talked about him in the past, but he's another transfer there, you know, Delano Banton, those are all guys that could be playing point guard. And uh you know, it, it took a lot of mending and merging of players and everything, you know, from transfers to JUCOs to everything, but uh we're at 13 players and and I think that's a good spot to be at.
1: Yeah, I've seen um Andre listed anywhere between 6'9 and 6'11. So it'll be interesting to see what he comes in at uh but he is a will be a true freshman opposed to a transfer and so you could you could argue he's gonna be a developmental player. Uh he might be able to give some depth just from a height and rebounding standpoint early, but I'm not gonna expect a lot from a scoring standpoint. But he's only been playing basketball for a few years and that's gonna be uh a, a, hopefully a nice addition um rounding out the class. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see uh how Hoyberg moves forward with recruiting even in state. There's a lot of in state talent here in Omaha, in particular Hunter Salas is someone that mm-hmm. is in the front and center of my mind on that one. But there's others um, that uh, he needs to be able to recruit from the high school ranks and, you know, kind of balance out the uh, the transfer market with recruiting, uh, you know, blue chippers from uh, local high schools.
2: Yeah. Well, you mentioned Hunter Salas and Dave, you are a Tar Heel fan. He received a UNC offer, and you know that gets in the, the category. We've had Kansas offers to kids out of the state of Nebraska, TJPU, and a number of other kids over the course of the years. But when UNC starts to come into Nebraska, I mean, that's, that's a different level, and that's obviously where Salas is at. Hopefully, Nebraska can still pull off kind of the miracle, but, it, boy, he's got a lot of competition going for him.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if there's ever been a Nebraska high school player recruited by North Carolina. That'd be a great trivia question. Um, I'm not certain uh, that there has been. Yeah, I mean, like Bill
2: Jackman went to Duke but that, under Coach K, but that was the early years of Coach K when they weren't the right. Duke that they are today.
1: I'll, I'll say if, if you're a Nebraska fan here and Hunter Salas goes somewhere else, keep in mind that he m- might be a one-and-done type guy um and so hey you only missed him out for a year right and if you nebraska lands him then you've just landed a a one-and-done guy that could be a program changer so um you know you can paint that as a positive or negative so don't forget too much about it but uh he is a high caliber recruit and uh i i hope that hoiberg can can pull him in
2: well one question that we did have that came in through the the mailbag is from believe in fred and he's a a longtime friend and listener of the Redcast. And he asked about the interesting perspective, is that could the hire of Hoiberg ultimately benefit the program, not from the standpoint of on-the-floor impact, rather from the standpoint of the staff's ability to manage transfers? And he's basically saying that transfers have increasingly impacted the college game. Blue Blood seemed to increasingly not be immune to this either. So he's basically saying with the potential of the one-time transfer rule improvement, implementation without sit-out, could this actually be a big advantage for the program? So Dave,
1: I guess I'll start with you there. You know, I mean, I think much has been made about Heuerberg and his ability to bring in transfers at Iowa State, and much has also been made that since he left college basketball and was in the NBA, that the rest of the sport had caught up to that philosophy, that other programs were now doing the same thing that Iowa State did five, six, seven, eight years ago, and that was to take the Royce Whites of the world and bring them in in a transfer scenario and um, have great success. And so would, would Frederick Hoiberg be able to do the same thing at Nebraska, considering everybody else is already now doing that? And I think the answer has been yes on that. And I think this class is more resounding than the first one. It was a little bit more on the Juco ranks uh, from the first time around. And of course we had the sitouts uh, like Delano Blanton and uh, Shamil Stevenson and, and Derek Walker. Uh, but now this, this time around, we've got more of those transfers and I, I think uh, Hoiberg is still proving his ability to bring those guys in. And he likes that because I think these players are, are hungry. And they are kind of past some of that recruiting drama that uh, Horburg admittedly doesn't really like, and they just want to play basketball and land a position in a program that fits their skill sets and uh, those are the type of players you you want long as they can um you know uh, fit into the system and and meet the academic requirements. those are the type of guys you want on your on your team and in your program so. I, I think we are in a good position. You're right, and and the fact that there's so many players more willing to transfer now than ever before, um, if you're proven that you can take transfers and you can create that in, uh, that team first mentality um, uh, out of a bunch of different uh, players uh, on an ongoing basis, that's a that's a good thing to have in this day and age. All right. Good stuff, guys. Uh, let's get out of here with some parting shots. Honky.
2: Well, mine are pretty quick here. Or I really only have the one. Uh, there was something posted from the Huskers social media in the last you know, day or so, and it was about coming soon Memorial, and memorials in quotation marks, a Nebraska football production. Something about, I'm, I'm thinking Memorial Stadium. I'm not sure yet. I'm very intrigued. I'm very excited uh, to see what that has to be about. So, uh, you
1: know, I guess stay tuned. That's really interesting. Sounds like that'd be in preparation for its hundredth anniversary. I would imagine. Uh, so we'll see where that plays out. Um, we have Redcast Rob uh, taking a nap, so we'll move over to Boomer. Well, I mean, podcasting and sports is what it is at this
0: point. It's there's not a lot we have to offer. It's it's a weird time for everybody involved, whether it's for football, or what should have been baseball at this point, or basketball, we're all just kind of making what we can of it, and uh, all of you as listeners or Redcasters, let's just uh, do what we can, make this work, try to do what we can as far as keeping social distancing, and as you get the results so we can get
1: everything back to as most normal as we can. So, go Big Red. All right. I like that, Boomer. Good points. All right, guys. uh, Great show. Had a good time. Glad to have a, a talk like this. Hopefully the Redcast listeners enjoy it. For now, let's call that a Go Big Redcast. GBR.